pleasure to be with you all tonight. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we're about to look the next couple weeks here to sermons where it says, take the word of God praying at all times. And so as we open your word now to continue in our study of the armor of God, we want to do it with prayer. Because many people in the world read this book and they don't see. They don't see you. They don't see your truth. They don't rejoice in the things that they see. And we need your spirit here tonight to help us do that. When we hear your truth, would you convict us? When we hear your truth, would you help us to rejoice in the wonderful things that we hear? When we hear your truth, would you fill us with all that we need to be your people in this world? Would you sanctify us by your truth? Your word is truth. So bless this time. Bless the words that I would say and use them for your purposes. We pray that you'd glorify your name in Jesus. Amen. One of my absolute favorite books outside the Bible is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Has anyone here read that book in its entirety? Okay, a few of you. Uh, the story focuses on an allegorical character who comes to be named Christian. And by God's mercy, Christian gets set on this journey towards a celestial city, sort of the heavenly city. And so it's, it's a picture of the Christian life as like a physical journey that this man goes on. And one of the most vivid events in the story is uh, an occurrence that happens at the name of uh, a man named Interpreter at his house. So at Interpreter's house, Christian gets to see a series of visions that are pictures of the Christian life. And I want to read one of those for you. So this is uh, Bunyan describing the story. I saw also that the interpreter took Christian again by the hand and led him into a pleasant place where was builded a stately palace, beautiful to behold, at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted. He saw also upon the top thereof certain persons walking who were clothed all in gold. Then said Christian, may we go thither? Then the interpreter took him and led him up toward the door of the palace, and behold, At the door stood a great company of men, as desirous to go in, but durst not. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a table side, with a book and his inkhorn before him, to take the name of him that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do the men that would enter that hurt and mischief as they could." Okay, so there's a palace. Christian wants to go in there, and he sees a bunch of men standing there that want to go into this palace, but there's a bunch of armed guards that are going to do whatever they can to keep people out. Now, Christian was somewhat in a maze. At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of very stout countenance come up to the man who sat there and saying, Set down my name, sir. The which, when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword and put a helmet upon his head and rush toward the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, 
not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace, at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace, saying, Come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. So he went in and was clothed with such garments as they. Then Christian smiled and said, I think verily I know the meaning of this. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to explore some more of the meaning of this. Because in that story, Bunyan cites a a scripture passage from Acts 14.22 that says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I can see that picture really clearly, can't you? This stout man that steps up and puts his hand on the table and says, set down my name, sir. And he puts this helmet on his head, draws his sword, and he knows what he has to do to get in there. But more than imagining that, I can, I can feel a sense of wanting to be that man. Wanting to be the one that's courageous enough to step up and do what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I, br- I bring up that story to bring us back to the passage that Josh read earlier the armor of God that we've been studying. Let me just remind us all that the text is encouraging us that we are in a very real spiritual battle. The battle is deadly, our enemy is crafty, and our need to stand firm is urgent. So Paul tells us we've got to take up the full armor of God, and tonight we're going to examine one piece, the helmet of salvation. And that's the second reason I brought up that passage from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian saw a man who put on a helmet and drew a sword. That's an exact allusion to the passage we're looking at tonight, 6.17, Ephesians 6.17, where it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we're just looking at the first part of that tonight, but that's what brought that uh, story to my mind when I was studying this passage. The helmet is the final piece of defensive armor that we're going to be looking at together. The, the type of armor that's meant to protect us from the blows of the enemy. And so Paul's point in Ephesians 6 is to encourage saints standing in the battle. But tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look more specifically at the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to look at this fact that salvation belongs to the Lord and is given to his people who have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by the Redeemer. Okay? Salvation belongs to the Lord first, and is given to his people who have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by the Redeemer. So, like I said, we're going to look at the doctrine of salvation tonight, in order to understand Paul's point a little bit better. We need to look at the doctrine of salvation so that we can understand how salvation is going to serve as a helmet in the battle that we're in. Okay, does everyone get where we're going tonight? We're going to look at this doctrine to understand Paul's point a little bit better. And I think the first place we need to go, actually, is Isaiah 59. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? Isaiah 59. Uh, Brother Jake mentioned this a few weeks ago, because the, some of the armor of God is not mentioned here first. Paul didn't just make this up. Actually, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation are first mentioned here in Isaiah 59, 17. Except the person wearing them in Isaiah 59 
is Yahweh himself. Okay? So let's look at that. I'm going to read a few select verses. And uh, if you'd like, you can, you're welcome to read the whole passage on your own. So let's start in verse 1. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Let's look down to verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before us, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Catch this. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Ah, Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. As we look at this text, I think there's three simple points that we can summarize it with. God is able to work salvation. Sin is a dividing line with respect to salvation, and there is no hope without a Redeemer. Okay, So God is able to save, there's a dividing line, and there's no hope without a Redeemer. So first, God is able to work salvation. Look at verse 1 again. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, there is nowhere that God cannot reach in order to save you. There's nowhere you can be, nowhere we can go, that God cannot reach his arm to save us. And the second part of the verse, there's nowhere we can go and call out to him that he's not going to hear us. His ears work just fine. Okay, So it's not an issue of God's ability. He can reach anywhere to save us. He can hear us no matter how quietly we might cry. 
He is able, he is mighty to save, but, but sin is a dividing line with respect to salvation. Look at the next verse, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay? It's not that he cannot hear, it's that he does not hear. This word for separation is the same Hebrew word that comes up in Genesis 1 where God, when he created, he separated light from darkness. Think about that. Think about that. When you walk into a dark room and you, and you hit the light switch, and it's just immediate. The room is filled with light. Okay? There's a, there's, a, there's a separation in the way God made light and darkness. Those things don't mingle. It's a clear separation. And that's the same word that's being used here for what our sin does between us and God. It's that kind of utter separation that it causes. The problem is not with God's power or His ability to save. The problem is with our guilt. The problem is with our sin. Look at verse 12 with me. We didn't, uh, well, we did read that one. Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Okay, The reason that we are on the wrong side of this dividing line of light and darkness, so to speak, is that we've turned away from following Yahweh. We've turned away from Him. These people that are in this passage, look, it said earlier, we didn't read these verses, but they speak lies, they shed blood, they stir up rebellion, and they have turned away from following their God. So, again, we need to, we need to emphasize, God is able to save but the sin is the dividing line. He's only going to save those that are on one side of this dividing line or not. And that's where the, the final point comes in. There's no hope without a Redeemer. As we look at this passage, there's no hope without a Redeemer. When we get to the point in verse 17 where God puts on the helmet of salvation, okay, remember that's why we're looking at this chapter altogether. When we get to verse 17 and God puts on that helmet of salvation, it's not exactly a positive situation, is it? Look at verse 15. It says, it displeased him. Verse 17 adds that he put on garments of vengeance. Verse 18 goes on to say, according to their deeds, which are evil, it's been described, according to their deeds, he will repay them. So they've been doing evil, they're going to get evil. Verse 19 sums it all up. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. That image brings up to my mind uh, another story from another of my favorite books, Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. Some of you have probably seen that movie, even if you haven't read the book. The part in that movie where Frodo Baggins is fleeting He's fleeing from the black riders of Mordor, these unkillable, unstoppable, ghost-like figures that have been pursuing him. Nine of them meet him at this river, and he rides his white horse across the river and just makes it across when these black riders come down on the other side, and they're trying to call him to come back. They're trying to take him captive and take him into their realm. Well, He's not going back, so they start coming across the river. And as they're partway across the river, about to capture Frodo, the hero in the story, the river starts to rise. It starts to rise up around the knees 
of the horses and they start to panic. They start to turn back and they try to get out of the river. And around the corner in the river, you see this rushing of water coming, pushing these huge stones. And down the river it comes and sweeps away these black riders that Frodo could never have defeated on his own. That's the idea of a rushing stream. And think about it. There was a clear dividing line in that situation, wasn't there? The rushing stream that was salvation for Frodo, okay, he was on the bank of the river on his white horse. The stream comes rushing down, and it was his salvation, was it not? It drove away his enemies. But that very same stream that was his salvation was their decimation. The very same rushing stream that saved him was what took out his enemies. And that's what we're seeing in this situation here. Okay? The rushing stream of Yahweh's vengeance. When he puts on a helmet of salvation, oh, it will be salvation for some. For some that are on the right side of the dividing line. But if you're not on the right side of the dividing line, it will cause fear. Fear from the east to the west. And if you're like me and you hear that, you want to be on the right side of the dividing line, don't you? You want to be on the right side when that fear and that rushing stream comes. And that's where verse 20 is so hopeful. The Redeemer who comes in verse 20, the Redeemer that comes to Zion is the same God that puts on the helmet of salvation. Okay? The same God that's going to send this rushing stream is the Redeemer who's coming. The Redeemer who's coming. Now, this idea of redemption is uh, something that we'll, we'll pick up a little bit uh, later on, but we just need, to, we need to, to leave it there looking at the fact that, look at the second half of the verse with me. It just holds the key right there. And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Okay, so that's similar to what Josh was getting at this morning. There has to be a turning. Those that are on the right side of the dividing line, those that are going to be on the bank of the river, not in the river when, that's, when the stream comes rushing down, are those that have turned from transgression. They've turned away from living their own way to living the way that God wants them to. So we'll pick up that idea in a little bit here. But let's, let's summarize it again. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, okay? His arm is not short. His ear is not dull. Salvation belongs to the Lord and is given to His people who have turned away from their own way of living, their own sins, and submit to His way. These are the ones who experience God's now and not yet salvation, God's now and not yet salvation. One of the things we need to remember when we read the Old Testament is that these people, many hundreds and thousands of years before our time, were looking at events like a man might be standing out there looking at a range of mountains. Okay? So if, if, if you're looking at a range of mountains, you'll see a bunch of peaks and it'll look majestic and beautiful, but it will all look like one big thing. But if you were to look at it from the side, you might see things a little differently. You might see that what that same man saw from my perspective here, you're actually seeing as two separate ranges of mountains, aren't you? But from here, it looks like it's all one thing. Okay? But for us, in this New Testament time, we live in between. 
we live in between the mountain ranges. So we see things a little bit differently. So when we read these Old Testament stories and these prophecies, we need to keep that in mind that when they're projecting something into the future, they're gonna, things might look like they're all mashed up, but really we can see things a little bit separately from our perspective a little bit later on. So it's not that the perspective Isaiah has here is incorrect about the Redeemer coming. His, his perspective is not incorrect. It's just that from his perspective, he can't see the full separation of time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. This now and this not yet idea. So the Redeemer who will come. The text gave us a little bit of a clue there in verse 20, didn't it? The Redeemer will come to those who are turning from salvation. Are turning uh, from transgression, excuse me. Okay? So there's this now, we are turning now, and the Redeemer will come. Okay? There, there's, there's a separation, a clue for us, right in the text. So since we stand in between this mountain range of Jesus' first coming and his impending return, we experience a slightly different perspective. Jesus has come and worked redemption on the cross. That's in the past. He paid the debt that was owed by us to buy us back from slavery. That's the idea of redemption, to buy something back. He paid a debt to buy us back from sin, slavery to sin. He worked salvation, and yet we also know there's a day when he's going to come back, and that will be the day of full, final, for all time salvation. And these are both salvation, are they not? What Jesus did on the cross is salvation, and what he will do on the last day will be salvation. In other words, the war was won at the cross, the victory is coming on the great day, and yet in between here, there's still a battle for holiness and winning the nations. The war was won, the victory is coming, and yet the battle still rages, and that's what Paul is pushing us to think about. The battle still rages right now for holiness and to bring people into the kingdom of God. And all of this, the past, the present, and the future, this is all God working salvation. So let's look back at the book of Ephesians now. But we're not going to go to chapter 6 just yet. We're going to go to chapter 1. Because I want you to see this from chapter 1. I don't want you to just think that I'm, I'm presenting some theological ideas that, that we're not getting from the Bible. I want you to see this right from the book of Ephesians that Paul has already talked about so if you had read the whole book through, before you get to the armor of God, you would have read things like what we're going to look at right now, and that would help you understand salvation when it gets to the point where it talks about the helmet of salvation. So uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, did you catch it? When you heard the gospel and believed it, you were sealed, past tense, with the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of an inheritance that we don't fully have yet. You were sealed with something in the past, you were saved. But we don't have the fullness of it yet. It's, there's something still coming. Another way you can translate this idea of a guarantee is down payment. 
down payment. The Holy Spirit is the down payment that guarantees our full and final and for all time salvation. We really are saved. We really do have the Spirit of God. And yet, there's something fuller, more final, that will last forever that's coming. And both of these are salvation. Both of these are salvation. Let's look at another example, maybe more familiar to you. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 8 to 10. Okay, the last example looked at a past tense and a still coming. We're going to look at a past tense and a present salvation now. Uh, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The idea here is people who have been saved by grace must now walk in that salvation. It's a, we were saved and we're now living out a salvation. The God who saved us has good works that we should be doing even now. The works don't save us. How could they? How could the works save us if we have to be saved in order to walk in them? And yet they are a very real manifestation of salvation. They are part of this battle of salvation that we live in holiness and that we seek the joy of our neighbors and we seek the joy of the nations. That's something we do now. That Something was done to us in the past. There's work for us to do now and there will be a final salvation. So by the time, we could look at some other examples in the book, um, but we don't have the, the time tonight. But by the time we get to chapter 6, you can see this idea developing that salvation is something bigger than just this moment you believed in Jesus and that was it, okay? There, there's, there's more of a full-orbed idea of a now and a not-yet salvation that, that carries on through our whole lives. And this now and not-yet salvation belongs to the Lord and is given as a gift, like we just read there, given as a gift to his people who have been, are being, and will be saved by the Redeemer Lamb. So what we've seen tonight is first, the helmet of salvation is God's to wear, not ours. Okay? The helmet of salvation is first God's to wear, and he gives it as a gift to, the, to his people. He gives it as a gift to his people who are on the right side of the dividing line of sin. Those who are turning from their transgressions to live his way. He gives them this helmet of salvation. Now remember, the Redeemer will come to those who are turning from transgression, walking in good works. Salvation is something foundationally that Christ does, not that we do. We must be saved. He is the Savior, as Ephesians 5 tells us. And yet we have to live this salvation out every day and prove that we have been saved by Christ. We walk in the joy and confidence of this perfect salvation that we look back on. We look back on the cross and we look forward to his coming salvation. And that gives us confidence to live it out. Confidence that's like a helmet. So I want to make application briefly because we're entering the Advent season, are we not? This is, this is one of my favorite times of year. And we have a perfect opportunity to put into practice this act of putting on 
the helmet of salvation. This is a great time to do it. Advent is the time when we look back to Christ's first coming, which was to work salvation on the cross. And it's also a time, that's what Advent means, the coming. It's also a time when we look forward to his second coming. Okay? The mountain ranges, the two comings, okay, this idea. Advent is the time when we celebrate both. It's not just about Christmas. Christmas is wonderful. I love to celebrate that holiday. And yet the time of Advent is about the comings of Christ. And so when we think about salvation, that it's now and not yet, this is a great time to celebrate that. And let's do that. Okay, I'm preaching to myself here. Let's celebrate salvation. Make your holiday feasting a celebration that Jesus is the bread of life. Make the music that you listen to something that celebrates the gift of God in Christ. Make your family gatherings a time to delight in the mercy of God to men. And though it's hard, I think we can do this whether your family is mostly Christian or mostly not Christian. It will look different, but I think we can still celebrate what God has done in working salvation for people. Celebrate, rejoice, be open to God throughout Advent season. Let him overflow in your life with the immeasurable joy and peace and hope that he will give. Expose yourself to his word every day like never before. Okay? If, if you need some help thinking of Advent readings, uh, you, can, you can search my name and you'll come up with my blog. And tonight I'm, I'm going to be posting these Advent readings I prepared for my kids. It's just one verse to look at every day that reminds us about the coming of Jesus. And I put them in their little Advent boxes so when they open and they get their little treat, they also get a verse and we go look it up in the Bible. Okay, So if you need help looking up verses, you can go get those on my blog but the opportunity to read God's word and think about his work of salvation, whether it be when he came the first time or when he's coming again, think about them all and celebrate his salvation. Bend your knees in prayer, really. Bend your knees in prayer if you can, or at least be bending in your heart and let your heart overflow in thanksgiving for his salvation. This is one huge way that we put on the helmet. We celebrate God's salvation. We rejoice in it. But also remember, the Redeemer comes to those who are turning from transgression. Celebration also needs to be matched with a sort of contrition, okay? Because we're not quite there yet. We're still in between. We're not at the total, full, final salvation. We're not at the feast of the Lamb that the book of Revelation talks about. We haven't made it yet. So while we celebrate His comings, we also are contrite over the sin that still exists in our lives. Jesus came the first time to deal sin a mortal blow on the head. And one day he will come to be marveled at among those who believe. And here we are in the middle, both celebrating and contrite over our own sin. So don't be surprised if when you celebrate and you look at God and you look at his wonderful work of salvation, if he doesn't show you things about yourself that might be a little unpleasant. That's part of the experience that we live in, in this in-between time. That looking at God is not just going to produce joy, it's also going to produce contrition. And we want to let both be part of our putting on the helmet of salvation. 
Now, though I said there is a balance, there's, there's both of those things, Let, let's be those that err on the side of celebration, okay? Especially during this time, because glory is where we're headed, okay? We don't just live in a static state between these comings. We're, we're actually going somewhere. We're going towards the final day. And in Revelation 7, 9, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. 